It's May 28th, 2014, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we cover the Geek Beat here on Hawaii Public Radio. First, we'll look at the latest tech news and happenings in Hawaii and beyond. And joining us today are Kyle Miller and Amanda Shigeoka from Iolani to tell us about a new yearbook technology. Then oh, Jason's, and also, yes. of course, and also Jason Sewell from Dev League is here to tell us about a workshop for young coders. And that's not all. Finally, we will talk to two homegrown pharma companies, Cardax Pharmaceuticals and Pono Pharma, about Hawaii's biotechnology industry. We'd, of course, love your questions and comments as part of the conversation, so please be ready to call in or tweet us. But first, the headlines. Well, an Associated Press report last summer said that the joint POW-MIA Accounting Command, or JPAC, risk descending from dysfunction to total failure after several instances of mismanagement and failures to follow leads and proper protocol. Recognizing JPAC's important mission, the Senate Armed Services Committee last week backed a proposal to recognize and consolidate JPAC and the Defense POW Missing Persons Office into a new accounting command under a single federal officer. The agencies are tasked with recovering and identifying the remains of American service members. The changes proposed by Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel create a single agency that will handle all accounting, research, and field operations. Montana Senator Claire McCaskill called it a first step in overcoming problems uncovered over the past year. The overhaul may mean more attention for the cases that have been delayed or overlooked. Well, for its part, JPAC has committed to meet a congressional mandate of 200 identifications per year among their top projects, the exhumation of 400 World War II sailors buried in Hawaii as unknowns after dying aboard the USS Oklahoma. Congress isn't alone in pressuring JPAC to move faster. John Zimmerly, historic researcher with the Korea and Cold War POW-MIA network, told Stars and Stripes that his amateur research has identified 355 unidentified service members buried at Punchbowl over the past 20 years. Now, of course, we've had the the um, JPAC folks over on the show. This was a couple of years ago now, right. but we, you know, af- I mean, before all of this hit the fan, right? There was the GAO report that mm-hmm. was very critical. Their own internal report was fairly critical as well. And of course, they're they're dealing with the the, the flux and the change in uh, administration and in uh, in budgeting. They are actually less than a month away, I believe, or almost a little over a month away from opening their new $82 million headquarters over at Hickam. Um, but even when it was budgeted, they didn't have the mandate to do 200 identifications per year. And they're saying that what they have in terms of facility and manpower isn't going to be enough for even that. So, well, you know, and, and from what I uh, saw over there when I visited was that, uh, you know, they take everything so, well, very seriously absolutely. because it's, you know, it's the people's remains. And, you know, it's it, it's such a long process. And to do 200, I mean, basically, you're doing almost, you know, one every other day. Right. And in fact, they were just in the news a couple of days ago now over a separate DOD investigation over building a $12 million road uh, in Papua New Guinea to reach a battlefield there from World War II. It's a 3.4-mile mm. road. So for it to cost $12 million, I think, raised a few eyebrows. Mm-hmm. Well, astronomy is a science requiring global collaboration, especially when access to the best tools is limited by time and geography. Even so, a milestone of sorts was recently reached with the remote operation of the twin 10-meter Keck Observatory telescopes. Researchers at Swinburne University of Technology in Australia this week announced that they directed the telescopes from over 5,500 miles away. It's believed to be the furthest distance a telescope of this class has been routinely remotely directed. 
The team also says that it's for, it's the first time a university outside the U.S. has operated either of the twin observatories. The research was conducted by Swinburne's Glenn uh, Keck-Perzax, who used the Keck to take spectrogra- spectrographs of distant galaxies. The astronomers noted that the ability to remotely acquire images and spectrography is nothing new, but since those observations still acqui- uh, require an operator at the Keck Observatory, it was more like eavesdropping. Now Swinburne's University has a dedicated ISDN line to the facility. The upgrade eliminates dependence on commercial internet service and also allows better scheduling of observing time given the time zone difference. Australian astronomers won't need to ask colleagues in Hawaii to stay up through extra shifts. Carl Glazebrook, director of the University's Center for Astrophysics and Supercomputing, said in a statement, From a remote operations center here on campus, we now have access to a portal to the universe that enables us to learn more about what the universe was like billions of years ago. Well, you know, I I think it's kind of novel that uh, somebody finds 5,500 miles away is is operating a telescope. But, you know, with the Internet, you could be anywhere, just like the Maui supercomputer. I mean, people were running their jobs from all over the world on a supercomputer located in Kihei, Maui. Yeah, I think it's more that it's a dedicated ISDN line, so it's not like if Oceanic's down or whatever's down, whatever they use there, that they're stuck. And those operations still required someone at Keck to kind of ride along. So it wasn't really uh, a complete remote operation, and they're saying that that's what this allows. Of course, time on telescopes is very highly you know, sought after. Mm-hmm, they were, mm-hmm. in fact, I think Swinburne is under a an agreement separately with the California Institute of Technology. They have 20 nights each year, but that runs out quickly with everybody who wants to use it. So any downtime, any delay, you know, is a, is a major loss. So I, I think it's kind of cool that they have a direct line into the system. You know, and this is the first time I've heard ISDN in such a long time. <laughs> Those I mean, still exist. I, ISDN used to stand for, I still don't know. But actually, it's you know integrated circuit, integrated services digital network. But yeah. nobody gets one. It's a, it's a sixty-four kilobit circuit. <laughs> right, but it's enough, to, I guess, to run a, a pair of giant telescopes. Okay, well, before we get to our news guests, a personal invitation. We want to call out all the geeks to come out on Sunday to the sixth. I thought it was seventh. It is seventh, yeah, seventh annual, annual Hawaii Geek Meet. That's so tell us right. about what's well, going on. Well, time flies. Well, the Geek Meet is an annual event. It's sort of it was inspired by the Maker Fair, but it's uh, basically a grassroots, very informal, very mm-hmm. casual event. It's a picnic. It's a picnic. It's a potluck. Please. Please bring food because, you know, we won't be well, able to feed like everybody. To yeah, and because it's a geek event, we generally get a lot of, like, you know, Jolt Cola and, and, and Cheetos. But, you know, <laughs> if you've got some good pizza. food, bring it down. Pizza. pizza. Pizza happens. But, you know, several groups co- uh, cooperate. Dev League, who we'll be talking about very soon, um, is one of the participating people. The Institute for Astronomy from UH, they're going to have telescopes. So is the Hawaiian Institute for uh, uh, Astronomy, uh, the LEGO users of Hawaii, uh, the Costumers Guild. So if you like the Stormtroopers, you like the medieval knights that are fighting with Swords. I mean, basically anything nerdy. What about and those that's drones? A wide net. There will be drones. Okay. Um, you know, we're we're going to be. We're, we're. It's more about learning and talking about responsible operation of drones. But I think one or two might make it into the air. For example, oh, sounds so good. ham radio folks. So yes, uh, please join us. It's a great event. Geeks don't get outdoors in the sun nearly often enough. So come on. Just put on some sunscreen and join us. So it's Sunday, June first. That's right. Starting at nine o'clock. Nine to three. Come and go as you can. Picnic site number 40. That's right, right in the middle of Magic Island. That's right. Okay, and now joining us here in the studio, Kyle Miller and Amanda Shigeoka from Iolani School. And they're here to tell us about Arasma. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that. You can pronounce it correctly for me. Uh, And their new yearbook. And uh, welcome to the show, Kyle and Amanda. Hi, good afternoon. It's a pleasure. 
Hi, thank you. Now, you know, we got uh, word that uh, this uh, Rasma app is kind of an interesting app that uh, is kind of tied directly to the yearbook. Now, I was sort of perusing through this yearbook, and it looks vastly different from my yearbook. For one, it's color. All color, glossy all color. pages. It Mine looks like was two all inches like black thick. and white. But, but Wow. Amanda, tell us a little bit about, you know, you guys, you, both of you are seniors. You, you both worked on the uh, yearbook. Um, tell us what went into deciding that you wanted to use this technology. Well, um, last spring, we went up as a, the senior group of the staff to go up to San Francisco for this conference. Mm-hmm. And this guy came up to us and introduced us to the app Erasma. And we were really intrigued and we were really excited to try and incorporate it into this year's book. So. Right. Was there any convincing that you need to do, Kyle? I mean, like the upper management at the Alani, did you have to tell them, hey, you know, can, can we use this app? Well, you know, our school's really been building recently, and we've got the new Sullivan Center. We've been um, working through this new iPad development and uh, distribution program for our entire school, our one-to-one program. And really, the administration was really supportive of the idea. Um, we're trying to, the theme of our book is breakthrough, and we really wanted to portray this in- innovative technology and uh, continue this theme of innovation through our school. And what better way to include that with, than with this app? Mm-hmm. Now, can you describe a little bit about what exactly this app does and how would it uh, benefit somebody who has a yearbook? Basically, uh, we've linked up these um, div pictures mm-hmm. into the app. And so when a student takes their iPhone or Android device and puts it up to the picture, the app recognizes the pixels in it and then it links it to a video that we have put together from throughout the year and it relates it back to that event. And so you, you can sort of think of it like a scanner or like, you right. know, like a QR right. code or some kind of a, a barcode, but it's actually looking at a picture. Yeah, exactly. And the cool thing is they have... It can be this apparasma can link any any object, any image, and it can link it right to whatever video content you'd like. Mm-hmm. In fact, it was at the Hawaii Library Association Spring Conference that I was uh, speaking at where I came across Erasma in the first place. And there might have been a reason why it was uh, very popular and exciting. And I do like it because it's not a QR code. There's not a specific symbol that you need to scan or a specific <coughs> app you need to have apart from Erasma because it identifies the image, whether it's the cover of a book in that example or a specific picture in the yearbook of someone's uh, pet gerbil. It can still trigger the app to show something. What are some of the things that are linked to things in the yearbook? Um, For example, we have our November Div, and during that time, that's when our head of school um, unveiled the new hawk that we have at Mm -hmm, Ilani. mm -hmm. And so we had some of our um, photographers go and take some video, and I actually took some myself, and um, we compiled those videos and had help from film classes, and we put together a video so the students will go up to it and they can watch that ceremony. Now on the uh, so the yearbook I'm looking at it has lots of pictures are the are all the pictures associated with some video or is it designated which pictures have videos associated with it Um actually in this table of contents every single um photo is linked to a video and these photos can be seen throughout the book and you can reference mm-hmm. it so Was there a lot of coordination that went on between you know the people putting the yearbook together as well as out there shooting video that's what we really liked about this project. It was kind of a whole school teamed up together kind of project, which is kind of plays into mm-hmm. our school's theme of one team. So we'd have video classes. We'd have our own photographers, our own videographers go out, and they would go in. They'd, video, they'd take video of these different events from all around school. So we'd have athletic events. Uh, we'd go to, you know, all these different kind of school events that we'd take video of. And together, we'd all bring that together and wrote that raw footage together and edit it, and we'd compile that into something that we'd 
that was cohesive. Mm-hmm. No, it was Mike Travis who was uh, who was at uh, Asset Schools who was demonstrating Erasma at the Iolani School, which I thought was kind of interesting. And um, you know, he was like, "Here's a you can point the app Erasma at the cover of a Harry Potter book. It recognizes just the cover, no special symbols, and it'll play a student's re- uh, review of that book. Um, and you, it sounds like there's a lot of video content specifically, but Erasma lets you link to a lot of other things. Are you primarily using video as the extensions to the yearbook? Uh, this year it was all video. Um, we basically took the videos that we got from the film classes, like Kyle had said, and um, they can link it, and all you see is video, and it has music in the background. And is this something that you see expanding, um, be, be, well, after the students respond to it and use it, would you see it deployed more widely on campus? Like, why why can't a mural on campus, why can't that sculpture behind the Sullivan Center be triggered by our Erasma to tell a story about that? I mean, most definitely, like, why should that not be a new thing around campus? Um, hopefully, it this is what kickstarts something like that happening. And uh, we've even heard great feedback from students. Like, one had said that uh, this was the best yearbook that they have seen because it comes alive. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it'd be great to incorporate that around campus. I yeah, that's that. great. I, from what I understand, Ilani uh, is the only school in Hawaii that's using this technology. Yeah, we're very excited to be the very first yearbook in the state to be using this technology. Yeah, great. And I think we'll probably see more. Now, uh, <clears throat> Amanda and Kyle, you both are seniors. T- tell us before you have to um, you know, leave is uh, where are you going to college uh, after you graduate, which is, I think is like in about a week. Right. Um, after next week, I'll be heading up to University of Oregon in the fall. Okay, great. And I will be on a long plane ride over to Durham, North Carolina, and I'll be attending Duke University. And wow. uh, what uh, courses of, of, of study do you think you'll be uh, heading into? Um, I'm looking into business. Um, pre-med. Sounds All good. Right. Congratulations. Thank you Thank very you. much. Thanks, Colin. Amanda, for joining us. We appreciate Thank it. Thank you. And now we welcome Jason Sewell from Dev League here to tell us about the workshop for junior coders. Welcome to the show, Jason. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Always good to see you, Jason. And, of course, Dev League is a very focused program that allows people to go from not a programmer to a professional employable programmer in a specific uh, fixed period. And now you even have a program to do it after hours and weekends as well. But this is even more interesting for me as a parent. Uh, What's the focus of this program? Uh, So we're calling this uh, Junior Dev League, and uh, really, just like you said, um, both me and Russell, we have have kids um, (coughs) that are pretty enthusiastic about Minecraft. Um, Oh, boy. Don't you have kids? Minecraft runs my house. So, I mean, you saw my daughters out there playing Minecraft right now as we speak. So um, it was kind of, you know, we're always kind of looking, you know, our our core mission is to really, um, you know, provide people the skills to to build and um, kind of, you know, increase technical literacy as a whole here in Hawaii. Um, So, you know, we've kind of focused on the adults and and that's really been our, our core but just in kind of looking, you know, in, in around us, what other potential opportunities we could do to kind of, um, you know, promote the the common interest and even people that are going to be coming up and be those adults, you know, in, in mm-hmm. the near future. Um, it just seemed like a good opportunity to take what was um, just this kind of rabid interest in in, in video games that are um, and and really uses an opportunity to introduce some uh, programming concepts and some engineering concepts because, um, as you know, that's built. <clears throat> a lot of those concepts are, are integral to the game. So, um, and, and kind of the other really benefit to it was um, you know a lot of these programs. I think from from being a parent that I've seen is. Um, you know, like the Lego League and a lot of, um, you know, some more of the kind of builder 
you know builder focused programs is that they're they're folk uh they the boys attend a lot more or or the boy there's just a heavier interest in with boys um minecraft is kind of one of the first things i've seen where it it brings boys and girls together mm-hmm. to have this shared interest um and so i think that was probably the most attractive thing about it was um being able to kind of break down that barrier. So in, in, in terms of the uh, workshop, are you covering just uh, sort of high-level concepts or are you getting down into some actual programming language? Uh, we're going to do both. So uh, we're going to look at engineering concepts, um, build out some, uh, some you know, kind of uh, concepts through the game like logic gates and, um, and uh, things like that, different materials, what you can build with. And <clears throat> excuse me. We're also going to be doing some coding. So um, our core language that we use for, even for the adults is JavaScript. There's a um, there's a framework out there that you can actually mod Minecraft with a JavaScript um, you know f- um, framework. So it, it ties in naturally to what we do, and it, it's a lot easier for kids, I think, to start off mm-hmm. in in that language as well, opposed to you're Java. You're not kidding about that rabbit interest again. My family is my my young sons in particular are motivated by Minecraft. I can I can get them to do any chore. I can get them to complete any task just for access to <laughs> right. Minecraft, and they can build things. They build cruise ships and such in this world. But what you're talking about is even a higher level. And my sons get very excited about mods, right? Mm-hmm. Little hacks so you can turn Minecraft into uh, Star Wars, or you can make every block interact in a different way than the game is designed to let you do. So that would be attractive, I think. If you were obsessed about Minecraft, you could take this this pro, this program and say, hey, how can I hack Minecraft myself? Right. Yeah. And, and that's it. I mean, that's exactly what we're talking about and why it was just a, such a perfect opportunity because, um, you know, everybody has an interest now in kind of um, you know, increasing you know tech um, around kids and and um, promoting you know that as a, as a viable future. And sometimes it's hard to kind of push a child into like I, I want you to learn programming. Like for an eight year old, you know that's a hard sell on my daughter. Right. I, I know probably for a lot of kids, and well, I haven't pushed that on her. But now it's like, oh yeah, hey, you know, do you, you do you want to make a mod? You can make your own mod. So and what I, what age group are you uh, appealing toward? Um, so it's eight to eight to fourteen mm-hmm. is is for this class. Um, this is our initial one. Um, depending on how this goes, we'll probably offer some other ones. And there's a couple of deadlines coming up, right? Yeah. So actually, this Friday. Uh, so the the class is actually next week, and we almost just on pre signups without really a whole lot of advertising. Kind of almost filled it up. So mm-hmm. there's as of this morning, I think there was uh, eight spots left, five to eight spots. I'm I, uh, if I, I can't recall. Um, but we'll probably be the reason we did it next week also is there's always a break. There's a gap in between, um, when school ends for parents and like combine of kids starts. So we'll probably do another one later this summer, um, and start looking at some other ones. So where can somebody go to, to actually sign up? Uh, so if you go to devleague.com, um, we have a junior dev league section now that you can find more information. Sounds great. Sounds great. Then, uh, thanks Jason for joining us. Thank you guys. And, of course, uh, that's what's been happening this week, and we'll take a short break. And when we return, we'll be joined by David Watermull and Kevin Lai. What's the current state of Hawaii's biotechnology industry and specifically the pharma sector? We'd, of course, love your thoughts or questions. As part of that conversation, you can give us a call at 941-3689 or 877-941-3689, toll-free from the neighbor islands. And, of course, we're live monitoring Twitter. You can tweet us your questions at Bite Marks or at Hawaii. This is Bite Marks Cafe. 
U plus one equals 3,000. That's how many new members we set out to gather this year. And thanks to enthusiastic response to the plus one program, we're already a third of the way there. Have you recruited your plus one? It's easy. Just ask one person you know to become a member of HPR. Then join us for the Plus One Powhana Recording Party on Friday, May 30th in the Atherton Studio. Find more information at hawaiipublicradio.org slash plus one. The Chris Vandercook Band salutes blues royalty, B.B. King, Albert King, and Freddie King in the Atherton on Saturday, June 14th at 7.30. The show, titled The Three Kings, will feature original hits and new horn arrangements inspired by these blues giants. For tickets, call 955-8821 during business hours or go online at hprtickets.org. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today is David Watermull and Kevin Lai. David is, uh, has more than 20 years' experience as a biotechnology industry executive, analyst, and investment banker. He is a co-founder of Cardax and co-inventor of the Cardax technology. Meanwhile, Kevin serves as the chief medical officer of Pono Pharma. He oversees all clinical trial efforts at the company and helps guide the strategic direction of Pono Pharma's pipeline. And what are some of the unique features about creating a pharmaceutical business here in Hawaii? Of course, we'd love to hear your questions and comments. And, of course, that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 1-877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. David and Kevin, we want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Great. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. Good afternoon, guys. Now, you know, the, uh, the sort of the biotech segment and, and more specifically the, the pharma segment in Hawaii, I mean, there, there are probably a good handful, maybe, what, eight, uh, eight companies or so that are uh, here. Um, David, tell us a little bit about, uh, I mean, you've been with Cardax for, and prior to that was Hawaii Biotech, right? Correct. And I think uh, for at least a dozen years now, uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, sort of your view, perspective of the, this sort of biotech industry here in Hawaii. I think the biotech industry in Hawaii, it, like many other places, will be based on the actual technologies mm-hmm. and uh, the potential breakthroughs that each of these companies has. It's really not so geographically defined anymore. Mm. The world is not a geographical place anymore where you now you can communicate and talk with anybody in the world and, and, and uh, send them an email and uh, talk with them on Skype, et cetera. Well, you know, we did an article earlier about uh, somebody f- uh, in, in a, what was it? Australia. Yeah, yeah. 5,500 uh, 5, 5, miles away running the Akek observatories. Yes. But, but so, you know, were there some specific technologies that you saw happening here that were was sort of the uh, – the, um, the genesis of Cardax? Yeah, interestingly, the beginning of Cardax came about because as a, as a former banker, uh, I was actually asked to help fund a company that was in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And this was a company that was growing microalgae that made something called astaxanthin. Right, ah, right, yes, right, yes. right. And it makes salmon pink and lobster red. Um, and uh, at the time, I just thought it, that was what it did. It was pretty. Uh, but uh turned out later that uh, it was a... Very different compound than just pink. It uh, made salmon uh, stronger. Uh, they reproduced better. They were bigger. And uh, without it, they w- weren't strong enough to swim upstream. Mm-hmm. And so when I realized that, I said, you know, there's something really profoundly important biologically happening here. And this is not just about making salmon pink, which is uh, nobody would really pay for. But it could make 
us humans more healthy. Mm -hmm. So I proposed to the company that uh, we we uh, bring out a dietary supplement around this product and. They said, well, you know, we don't really know how to do that. Can you do that? And so I helped, and we, we, we brought out that. So the genesis of this was because that company was here in Hawaii who was growing this microalgae, and that was related to weather because, mm-hmm. of, the, because of the weather. So that's, we got to start here because of that. But uh, no one is impressed that we're in Hawaii when I go to the mainland uh, other than, oh, you know, surfing and umbrella drinks. But, uh, you know, they're not, they're not like, oh, well, of course you should be in Hawaii. Uh-huh. But... You know, there's really no place today. You know, the uh, every, most of the companies I know are virtual manufacturings in Europe or in Asia, and uh, financing is in New York or San Francisco. The company could be anywhere. You know, marketing is done from someplace else, and so there's a lot of virtual companies today. And I think that's the the real model, the, the modern model. Mm-hmm. So if you could be anywhere, at least for you, why not live here? I exactly. Suppose. Yeah. Exactly. Now, Kevin, for Poto Pharma, well, tell tell me that story, your story. If you could be a pharmaceutical company anywhere, have workers anywhere, and do things anywhere, um, what was the genesis for forming Pono Pharma here? Well, the origin story of Pono Pharma, interestingly, is that it started as a bank. Hmm. And not in a bank, but as a bank. And actually, uh, Dustin Shindo, who is our CEO, uh, had an idea of starting an online savings bank called Savings Point and was able to develop that company with one of his partners from some of his previous ventures. Along the way, these guys had a couple of great ideas, as we often do, just sitting around the table thinking of great ideas. And one of them was to investigate some type of development of a pharmaceutical. And so examining some of the IP that was available uh, around the world, actually, uh, Dustin was able to engineer the uh, bringing in of uh, the IP for a pr- type of molecule called a proteasome inhibitor, which is a drug that's used to uh, combat a type of cancer called multiple myeloma. Over the course of a year or three, uh, they were able to acquire the IP from the different universities that had developed this molecule. And in the course of hiring a couple of folks to work with the company, more great ideas came from that, and one of which led to the development of a new type of antibiotic that actually uses silver ions to treat drug-resistant bacteria. So from what might say a humble origins, uh, it's become a, a very interesting company with a lot of different interests. Well, I kind of think it's interesting that both for uh, David and yourself, there's sort of a financial industry sort of background to it. But I, but it's interesting how in your case, it's we realize that pharmaceuticals is an interesting area we could get into. What is some IP that we could try to commercialize versus maybe just a chance meeting and pink salmon and wait a minute, there could be something going on here. Um, so, uh, Kevin, tell me a little bit more about the, the, that, uh, that second compound that you talked about. What, what were some of the, uh, the characteristics of it that, that you were excited about? Sure. Uh, if you're speaking directly of the antibiotic, it's yes. a fantastic way to treat the, the rise of drug-resistant bacteria. And really what we're doing is leveraging the way these bacteria have developed ways to defeat current antibiotics to our advantage. The long and the short of it is that we can use a silver ion, which is a very potent antimicrobial type of agent, and hide it within the clefts of a known antibiotic, just the type of antibiotic that bacteria love to chew and chop up, and that's what makes them resistant. However, when the bacteria cleaves that molecule, it releases the silver ion right next to the bacterial wall itself, and that allows it then to attack the bacteria on several different fronts 
and then eradicate that type of bacterium. So when you talk about bacterial uh, resistance and antibacterial resistance, and, and pardon me for a, for a more layperson understanding of this, you know, my house, I probably have 30 little bottles of antibacterial stuff everywhere. And, you know, my kids, much as I love them, they're, they're laboratories unto themselves in terms of strange germs that they bring home. But the fear is, of course, or the story you hear is that if you keep using that, that your germs get stronger and more powerful so they can fight back against those uh, hand lotions and such. So this uh, compound you're talking about kind of builds into that bacteria uh, extra poison pill, I suppose? To exactly. We call it a Trojan horse in that we're delivering this uh, warhead, if you will, of a silver ion right up to the bacterium, let it do the job of bringing the ion right to it, and then it will do its work. You know, I'm kind of curious, going back to the, uh, the genesis of, of Pono Pharma, when you, you were thinking about this, uh, this uh, sort of banking service and, and then making that sort of pivot into more of a, a pharmaceutical or, you know, looking at p- potentially, you know, the, uh, creating drugs. Was it, was it a, a 180 degree kind of turn from talking financials and maybe opening up a facility that could service a broad uh, market of, of uh, people versus something that was a little bit more specific but had perhaps the potential to be, you know, uh, large? How did, how did that conversation go around that round table. I'm always curious about being a fly on that wall when people make those pivots. Sure thing. Well, the way I've heard the, to- the story told is that uh, Dustin Shindo, our CEO, and uh, Kaleo Taft, who was his uh, high school buddy, they, of course, have been involved in some other earlier companies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Kaleo has a, a background in a number of different things, uh, different from what Dustin's is, but together, you know, they just have these great ideas. Dustin has always had an interest in developing and bringing a pharmaceutical to market, and I think that will always be a goal of his until, uh, you know, we accomplish that. Uh, but the idea was, well, how, what can we do that is... Uh, treating a type of disease that is very important to society, is, has a large impact on patients who are stricken with this type of cancer, and then what can we do to solve that problem? And that was a goal of Dustin's, and it's an admirable goal, and that's what we've been working on. We're talking to David Watamole from Cardax uh, Pharmaceutical as well as Kevin Lai from uh, Pono Pharma about the local biotech and pharma industries. And if you've got a question, these are the experts that you want to bounce those questions off of. So you can give us a call at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Now, uh, David, tell me a little bit more about uh, the, the, the compound. So you, you found that it could have these other applications. Um, what are some of the things you're discovering? beyond the dietary supplement angle? Well, what we found was that this compound really was a powerful yet very safe anti-inflammatory. And in the last 10 years of time, what's happened in the scientific community is a very, very strong understanding of the role inflammation plays in chronic disease. So it turns out that we call diseases, you know, diabetes or liver disease or osteoarthritis, uh, Alzheimer's, uh, liver disease, et cetera. But at their molecular level, they really are driven by inflammation, hmm. which in, in turn is driven by oxidative stress inside the cell, intracellularly. And so astaxanthin, as it turns out, actually gets into the cell in the proper place in the cell, in the mitochondria, mm-hmm. where the energy is produced, and can impact the oxidative stress that leads to inflammation. And so what we've seen now are more than 1,000 published papers on, on astaxanthin, 40 human clinical trials. The FDA has weighed in and given it a GRAS designation. That is generally recognized as safe. That's the highest safety designation the FDA can confer. And so what we have is a 
very powerful anti-inflammatory, head-to-head equivalent to a steroid, actually. Uh, that's the gold standard of anti-inflammatory activity, but yet has the grass safety that the FDA has mm. already, already conferred on it. So when you think about these diseases, we think of them, oh, how can it help all these different diseases? It's really kind of focusing on one area, which is the, the inflammation that leads to all of these different diseases. Now, I'm kind of curious. So, you, you know, there's a lot of drugs on the market, uh, over-the-counter you know, if you talk mm-hmm. about inflammation, I mean, I <laughs> would tend to pop uh, ibuprofen or something. And, you know, I'm kind of curious on, on one level, does the body go into this sort of inflammatory mode because it's uh, trying to fight against something? And then by taking an anti-inflammatory, you know, are you preventing the body from actually repairing itself in a way that, you know, it should naturally repair itself? The uh, What happens uh, with... with all these other anti-inflammatories is that you, you, you do have significant side effects, whether it's ibuprofen, steroids, uh, you know, the list goes on and on. Um, but, and they have, uh, you know, inherent side effects. And the real key here, what, what we saw, was that uh, this was far, far safer. Mm-hmm. Um, but w- it, as it turns out, the inflammation, the chronic inflammation that drives these, uh, diseases is not healthy. And what you want to do is restore the intracellular balance, mm-hmm. the electrical balance, if you will, inside the cells so that the cells become healthy again. And so instead of doing, preventing something from happening, you're allowing the normal mm. cell functioning to okay. occur. So, so um, <clears throat> are you suggesting that you know, rather than I take uh, you know, the ibuprofen, I should, I should go buy some azathioprine and, and maybe try that for, you know, inflammation that might occur if I'm having a headache or sore muscles or something? You know, I think that that's a much better choice. Is uh, that something that I can just go to the pharmacy and pick up over the counter? There are, there are certainly astaxanthin products on the market today from the microalgal sources mm-hmm. that, that, that we first came up with. My company is, gonna, is coming up with a large-scale mass market uh, way to make, make nature-identical astaxanthin. A uh, partner is going to be BASF. Ah, Ooh. we should talk about, okay, about okay, okay, okay. I yeah. do want to talk more about that business yeah. side for okay. sure. But before we get too far, um, Kevin, you, we talked about the antibiotic, but you also mentioned a proteasome inhibitor for cancer treatment. And although I have no idea what that means, I mean, <laughs> I, I'd like to learn. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, uh, multiple myeloma is a drug, is a disease rather, that involves the, the bone marrow. And it's a, a hyperproduction of certain types of cells, which then kind of throw things off balance within the body. Uh, the drug that we make is of a class called proteasome inhibitors, and this is a newer type of medication for multiple myeloma, which has a very dismal five-year survival rate, and we're talking on the order of less than 30 35% of patients survive after diagnosis uh, within five years. So the need is great, and we referred, you know, spoke earlier about how Pono Farm has been interested in finding uh, ways to treat very significant diseases. So our drug is... Uh, of the proteasome inhibitor class, and the the root there is proteasome, which is a portion of a cell, and its job is to degrade proteins that kind of accumulate within the cell. And you can imagine that if the proteasome, which degrades these proteins, were to be turned off or inhibited, then all the proteins that were due to be processed and and chopped down into small pieces, those would begin to back up and build up in the cell. And you can imagine imagine just turning off the the trash compactor and then what's going to happen? Things are going to build up. Eventually, that cell will become prone to uh, basically dying off. And so that's the goal of therapy with these types of drugs for multiple myeloma. Mm -hmm. Now, is this something that uh, has a... 
long clinical period? I mean, what what is the actual idea? I mean, from the start of the, uh, let's say, identifying the right uh, um, compound, I guess, uh, and to actually have it on the market. I mean, is that a fairly long cycle? Certainly. It, certainly it is. And, you know, the general thought is that from concept to being on the market might take 12 years or more hmm. for development of a drug. Now, fortunately, Pono Pharma was able to uh, very keenly identify some key uh, intellectual property that had already gone through the process of identifying a potential molecule that would be of use. And so it was that acquisition and working between the University of Hawaii, University of Zurich, and University of Munich that we're able to bring all of those rights together, and now they are assigned to Pono Pharma. The chemist that we hired was able then to take that molecule and tweak it a little bit. And we've been going through iterative tests of these uh, different molecules, testing them in the lab uh, in different studies to show that they are able to uh, treat this type of disease. Uh, but getting that head start of acquiring the IP really saved us from needing to go through the the, the process of developing mm. things from mm-hmm. scratch. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I mean, this is probably opening a Pandora's box, but you mentioned that 12-year ramp-up and how long it takes any drug company to develop something. And since you're specifically talking about an IP play, um, I was wondering what your thoughts were on recent efforts to do patent reform at the federal level. And a lot of people who are concerned most, more on the software side, from my angle, that, you know, that these are too restrictive and it's actually impeding business, but a pharmaceutical company needs um, a period of exclusivity in order order to recoup the costs that they've invested in developing their technology. So was that, was that a fight that you were watching closely? Absolutely. In fact, that's why I filed a provisional patent last week with the U.S. Patent Office on, uh, again, one of those tweaked versions of our proteasome inhibitor. And how about you, David? I mean, you, and you've been in the industry, industry for some time, and you've probably heard these arguments a dozen times. Well, the patents are very important. I think there's no question. Uh, you know, we've, I think, received 13 U.S.-issued patents, seven global patents. So we spent a, a lot of money, maybe too much money on, on patents. But uh, the, uh, the controversy around the patents was uh, about some of the more basic things, about what you can patent, can you patent a gene, you know, th- those kinds of questions. But a new molecule, you know, like what uh, Pono was talking about or the um, new molecules that we've developed, uh, those uh, are still and should be patentable uh, because those are the true inventions. Patenting a gene that already exists in nature, yeah, I think there may be some controversy around something mm-hmm. like that. Well, even the uh, idea of patent- patenting uh, DNA sequences, I mean, that's something that has been floated around some of the, uh, the, 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 the journals. I mean, what's your thought on, on that? Well, that's specifically uh, DNA is, of course, part of genes. Mm-hmm. So going in there and patenting DNA sequences that already exist in nature, uh, I think the courts have uh, come to say, no, you can't do that. But if you change it, if you f- figure out a way to uh, uh, you know, create a, a gene expression from mm-hmm. that or to do something different with it, then that is a true invention. You know, we want to uh, continue this conversation because I, I, I want to get to the point where we're talking about how you are going to take this to market because yeah. I think that's going to be a, a fascinating, fascinating story. We want to hold that thought. We'll be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with David Watermull and Kevin Lai about the innovation in the biotech industry here in Hawaii. In fact, can Hawaii pharma companies compete and how can they do it with larger companies outside of the islands? We'd, of course, love to hear from you. Our phone lines are open at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, you can call us toll free at 877-941-3689. You are listening to Bite Marks Cafe. There's a national organization solely dedicated to protecting Social Security and Medicare. 
It's privately funded, and its CEO is in Hawaii this week. Next on The Conversation, we'll talk with Max Rickman of the National Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare. That's tomorrow morning at 8 on The Conversation. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Liz Kallick. And I'm Marianne Rodmacher, and we're co-authors of She. Next time on New Dimensions, we'll be talking about She, a celebration of greatness in every woman. Sunday morning at 11. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we're talking to David Watamal and Kevin Lai about building a pharmaceutical company here in Hawaii. Well, are there things in Hawaii that could uh, do to help companies like yours be more competitive? Of course, uh, you can give us a call here. That number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. And, of course, right before the break, we were kind of getting into the so the, the business of, of pharma and how perhaps Hawaii companies can compete on this global market. And and David, you were uh, starting to tell us a little bit about some of the plans that, that you have in terms of, you know, if somebody like me wanted to go and buy um, this astaxanthin on the market and, you know, get it like I could easily get uh, ibuprofen from the Costco shelf that has, you know, f- 500 tablets in a, <laughs> in a bottle. What, what steps do you need to take to get to that level of distribution? We are going to, uh, we had, and we have developed the kind of chemistry that's necessary to produce astaxanthin at the very, very large scale mass market that will ch- is available to treat millions of people. Currently, the microalga production, uh, and I come from that background, I, I understand it really well, uh, does a really good job, but it, growing a lot of that, enough for a mass market, very, very difficult. Very, it's a difficult, scalable process. But what we've done is to create a nature identical version of what's uh, in nature and what's in salmon, for mm-hmm, example. Mm-hmm. And with our partner, BASF, who developed this process, actually on our dime, it was not, no one knew how to do it, of a specific natural astaxanthin, and they've been able to do it at very large scale. So they, they have done that, and they have now licensed from us the opportunity to use that molecule as a dietary supplement or nutraceutical. And that product, sh- I can't say exactly when because of our uh, confidentiality agreement mm-hmm, with sure. BASF, but it's pretty soon. And that, so it sounds to me that one of the challenges, I mean, I, I imagine that the traditional manufacturing method would involve large vats and great deals of real, real estate and sun and, and cultures and such, um, so that it was more production that was the constraint, that the demand is there, the distribution channels are available, but it was more how to make enough of it. Exactly. So the breakthrough was how, what was the chemistry process necessary to really get this to really large scale? So that's that's what we've been able to do. Uh, with our partner, BASF. Now, you mentioned one of the things uh, was, uh, you know, the FDA has approvals and has an understanding of a specific class, so that helps because that's an essential, essentially kind of a pre-approval of a lot of the, uh, the the uses you have in mind. But the other thing that uh, I think we covered a few months ago was how your company was uh, found a way to reach a publicly traded status. Now, of course, now with TV shows like Silicon Valley and all the detention on on venture capital and reaching the IPO stage and how much preparation goes into it, uh, I thought that you had a rather novel way to be 
publicly traded without necessarily going through all that rigmarole. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, there, we still had some rigmarole. <laughs> so there, there was still some. But uh, the process we use is something called a reverse merge IPO. Mm-hmm. And that's where you, the private company merges into a public company. In most cases, this public company is either non-operating or not operating or never has operated. We call it a shell. And so the private company then merges into this public company and takes over, if you will, you know, the public company. But the public company, um, even though it has no operations, has been filing with the SEC, uh, is, is up to date with the SEC. But now, once the merger takes place, has new management, us, you know, from Cardex, a new strategy, Cardex strategy, a new name, now named Cardex. Um, and the, this whole process allowed us to raise some f- fairly significant capital, even in anticipation of that move. Most IPOs, there's no money to the company until you actually do the IPO. And sometimes you can find some mezzanine financing. So I won't say never. Uh, but in our particular case, we raised $11 million, seven of which came in before the actual IPO itself. And that was very important cash for us. Yeah, it kept us going. Uh, it you know, uh, created some real work uh, that we were able to accomplish. Uh, and when we merged, then we became uh, public at, at that point. So mm-hmm. we're a publicly traded company. You know, CDXI is our symbol today, about $100 million market cap. Uh, you know, so pretty good. You know, I mean, it was a pretty good strategy. But you also have to find investors and Wall Street banks that are interested sure. in your company to, to make this work. But the one thing, but well, one thing about that is that uh, if you're proceeding on the path of a reverse uh, IPO, mm-hmm. is that unlike a traditional company that may or may not IPO, an investor has a higher confidence that they that that at least that uh, milestone would be reached. And that's that's what was attractive, and why we're able to attract financing prior mm-hmm. to the IPO itself. Now, you know, there's some uh, you know some negatives to a to a reverse merger as well. You don't have the big banks behind you necessarily in analyst coverage, but there are some other things you can do to try and uh, mitigate those uh, mitigate those issues. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. obviously, having a solid company with a solid uh, future, uh, you know, w- that has visible uh, pathway to success is, is crucial. So, so I was going to ask about the uh, seven million dollars, and you basically answered that, and that was pretty. Um, it was pretty much. Uh, Attracted by the fact that you were heading toward this reverse merge IPO, yes, uh, and but and you also said that the, some of the downside was that the big banks and some of the uh, uh, the coverage that you might get isn't as as um, Ro- robust. Robust, yeah. Uh, why is that? Is that because you know this is so I don't know um, planned out? I mean, <laughs> well, the, the the difference is uh, that typically the big banks do deals that are fifty million, a hundred million, two hundred million dollars, more like the higher numbers that I just mm-hmm. mentioned. Mm-hmm. And so they want to crank up all of their machinery for a much bigger deal. Uh, so if you're going to raise a smaller amount oh, of see, money, uh, they don't usually you know, get involved in that. But uh, I think in our particular case, uh, it, it, while it is a challenge, I think we have an opportunity to get that visibility that uh, some of these other companies you know, achieve through the IPO, through uh, other ways of bringing the story to investors on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, so I did find that as a as a really interesting path. In fact, I think the shell or the company that you had reverse IPO'd into was a coffee coffee house, coffee coffee shop business that never got beyond one location. So they had a they had a stock ticker number. They had all of their paperwork filed. So why not, you know, find this this life for it? Right, and it was not a, probably an appropriate use of being public, you know, for that business. Mm-hmm. So it probably didn't fit them, whereas it fits us, and so. 
that was just the name of that company, but right. you know, so that company is no longer part of right, uh, right. part of Cardex uh, today. But now we do have our own different symbol, mm-hmm. our own name, yep. you know, et, et cetera. Now, um, speaking of IPOs, now Kevin, uh, I would imagine that that's one of the things that may be on the horizon or in the in the game plan for Pona Pharma as well. And at least in your case, uh, um, your founder Dustin Shindo has some experience in that world. So, I mean, what what just broadly speaking, again, without giving away any secret sauce, I mean, what are what is your what are your feelings on that prospect um, down the road? Absolutely. Well, it's very good that the Pono team does have Dustin's experience, having taken Hoku Scientific public in two thousand five, and that has just a, been a tremendous wealth of knowledge that we've been able to draw on. And he and I have traveled to meet with investment bankers and whatnot to discuss things, just as David had had mentioned earlier. And his point is exactly right, that their interest is often in much, much larger deals than what Pono Pharma might approach a bank for, for example, to fund some upcoming clinical trials with one or both of our molecules. So it is a challenge. It's uh, the process of describing and convincing uh, a bank, an investment bank, that you know this is the, an appropriate deal for them to oversee and, and help with the financing. And it's something that uh, we continue to go through. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm curious, you know, in terms of the uh, cycle that you are uh, embarking on and, and having sort of this 12 years to continue to fund uh, Pono Pharma before you perhaps, you know, go IPO, uh, is there enough of that sort of investment capital in Hawaii? And I think maybe you've already sort of answered that if you're making the trips to the mainland. You know, is the money there, and are they willing to invest in companies in Hawaii? You know, we often hear about investment uh, <clears throat> investors, whether they're venture capital or investment bankers, want to know that the company is sort of in their backyard before they actually invest in them. Uh, what's your sort of uh, read on that? Well, sure, it's an evolving landscape, and I think as the economy goes up and down and the stock market goes through its particular cycles, uh, there's waxing and waning interest in funding companies, both locally and also local investors who want to invest in companies on the mainland or elsewhere. So it is a challenge of always trying to to tell the right story, find the right folks who have the interest and means to want to get involved in a, in a project such as, you know, what Pono Pharma is doing. Mm-hmm. And once they understand often that, you know, the work that we're doing and its importance uh, there has been an interest in joining on. Mm-hmm. Now, David, what's your take in terms of the local opportunities for investment? You are saying, you had said earlier that the numbers might be smaller than a large investment bank might pursue, but I would say maybe $7, $10 million might be something that a, a local investor or a, a, a smaller uh, organization or institution here might be interested in. Is that something that you look into, or is, again, you have to go anywhere where that funding can be found? Well, first of all, I do think you have to look in many different places. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have to see who you know who likes your story, you know who who wants to invest. Uh, but the backyard issue that you, that you guys have brought up earlier is really more venture capital. And what, so you know the venture capitalists are the ones who you know they might sit on your board. They, they typically take a much much more hands on approach than an investment bank. So we didn't find that why Hawaii thing to be as big a problem. Hmm. For, for investment banks. The investors that they brought to the table still ask that, though, of course. And we tell them the story about what happened. But I did want to mention that we do have something in Hawaii that is very helpful and kind of checks a lot of boxes and is our what's called our research and development tax credit. Mm-hmm. So we currently have a law in the books that allows uh, a company, to, if they spend on R&D, the difference this year versus last, we, we can get a 20% refundable credit. And if one is planning a large increase in in your R&D, uh, then you, you can get a, a substantial um, check back from the state of Hawaii. 
When I mention that, everybody goes, oh, okay, that's why you're in Hawaii, check. Mm-hmm. So it's very, very helpful. Otherwise, the, the, the question comes up, where, well, we don't care if you're in Hawaii. Uh, that's fine, but why are you there? Mm-hmm. And, and so the, the, there's a two-edged sword to that, you know, the global world that we have today, which is it can be anywhere, so it can be anywhere. It doesn't have to be in Hawaii. And, so and, yeah. I'm curious, you know, in terms of your operating budget, uh, how much of it is R&D versus everything else? Well, R&D plays, a, you know, certainly in the past played a very, very significant role. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a significant amount of, the, uh, of some parts of our R&D behind us, the chemistry. Uh, we, we did a lot of animal work as well, demonstrating efficacy. Um, and, but going forward, we are interested in additional clinical trials. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we would like to do them in Hawaii for the, the R&D credit plays a significant role there. The population plays a significant role. The clinical trial expertise that's available in Hawaii plays uh, a significant role as well. And we can see it. Mm-hmm. And right. we, can, we can manage it uh, as well. Uh, but clinical trials uh, are typically, especially as you get b- into larger phase two and three trials, are typically done in multi-centers ac- across, uh, across the country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Kevin, how about in your case? I mean, in some cases, it's the licensed IP. You're working with universities, including the University of Hawaii. It's, uh, we, all, we talk quite a bit about universities commercializing their research work. Um, but I would imagine that because there is a clinical trial component for your molecules, whichever you pursue first, for example, that R&D or possibly R&D credits is a significant part of your um, business plan as well. Absolutely. And um, the thing is, though, that other geographic areas also offer similar credits uh, for development. And, for example, Australia and some other uh, locales will offer significant credits back as well. So there is a bit of competition in mm-hmm. trying to find out exactly where to cite these clinical trials. Does, uh, does Hawaii stand up pretty competi- competitively in terms of you know, whose R&D credits are better than others? Well, uh, as far as the rates, um, obviously some other countries, again, Australia and Canada as well, uh, will offer pretty generous uh, returns. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mm -hmm. the difficulty also is for one of our products, the proteasome inhibitor, finding enough patients to enroll in a clinical trial might be difficult for a disease such as that. So we might have to look elsewhere or, as Dave suggested, a multi-center trial. Well, Kevin, I mean, uh, we hear and we cover quite a bit about local cancer research, cancer research center, and work done in that space. Is there Does that help in any way, uh, if not critical mass building, at least some local support infrastructure for doing clinical trials or doing research in that area? Absolutely. And one of the advisors for Pono Pharma is an oncologist on staff with the Cancer Research Center here. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, one of the things I'm, I'm kind of curious about, we, we had a, uh, a couple of uh, winners from the business plan competition, and, and both of them had uh, some business plans that were healthcare related. And, and one of the things that I wanted to get your feedback on is there have been these accelerators uh, happening in Hawaii, you know, blue startups, and, you know, there's an accelerator for the creative industries on the Big Island, uh, Energy GDS, right, Energy Accelerator. There's also the M. Bloom guys on Maui. Do you see any interest in setting up a sort of a medical healthcare kind of accelerator here? And would your companies have, have perhaps benefited from something like that? I think it's a great idea. Uh, it, it, our business is more capital intensive. So the amounts of money that have to go in mm-hmm, right, uh, are, right. are greater. So that it needs a commitment. But I, I would uh, I certainly have heard, uh, and I know that people are working on uh, those kinds uh, of efforts, including perhaps a healthcare fund. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people have tried to put together something. I don't think it's quite together yet. Um, but uh, 
an accelerator that includes financing, uh, at least you know, seed-type financing or early-stage financing in the life science areas, I think would be welcome, and we would have, would have been very helpful to us as well. But I think you, you said something very important there, and that's uh, you know, at, the, at the kind of investments that they're talking about, perhaps, uh, I don't know, $25,000, that's, that's small, right? I mean, yeah, you guys are looking at it. That doesn't work really in our business. Right. Yeah, so it needs to be, you know, it, it needs to be significantly more well, than well, that. Well, just like the, uh, I think the, uh, the energy accelerator was a, a lot higher. Yes. Uh, Kevin, your thoughts on it? I'd like to say that, you know, there's really no dearth of talent here in Hawaii. And uh, I'd just like to relate a story that actually involves the way David and, and my paths crossed a couple of years ago. I'd been approached by a company on the mainland that was interested in conducting some research here in Hawaii or in the state of Texas because one of their institutional investors had offered that as an option. Mm -hmm. And so they approached me to try to put together a team of roughly uh, 30 scientists or so to accomplish a number of different tasks for the development of their product. Mm -hmm. And David mentioned before the idea of oxidative stress, and that actually had a role in the product that this company on the mainland was interested in. I approached David, and I think he was able to refer me to some folks and also some of the people on his team at Cardax who might have interest and skills that were needed for this. As it turned out, I was able to talk with folks from the University of Hawaii in Manoa, in Hilo, at HPU, and uh, as with David, some private uh, industry as well put together a team, and unfortunately, although the funding went to the state of Texas, it really uh, buoyed me to know that you know, we had the ability to drum up these types of, of folks here in the state. Oh, that's great. So, that's David, great. I mean, your thoughts uh, in terms of the talent here. You, we have students coming out of UHS. You mentioned work with HPU and others. Um, we had the, the, the business plan winners. Um, would you, you would still imagine and encourage that, 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 that this is a field that our students should be pursuing? You know, absolutely. And so the issue is not really training, nor is it the talent in Hawaii. It's actually funding, because mm -hmm. if you do not have jobs for those people, uh, you cannot expect them to sit here and wait for mm -hmm. a job. People say, oh, there's no talent here. Well, well you know, you could hire f hundreds, because there are so many people interested in, in a particular field. If you give them the right opportunity, the right career opportunity, the right molecule to work on, et cetera, you know, we could easily have people here, and a lot of people would come back who are from Hawaii in the first place. Sounds well, good. if somebody wanted to learn more about uh, Cardax, where should they go? Well, our website is www.cardaxpharma.com, and okay. we've got a lot of information there. Kevin? Sure, and www.ponopharma.com. Fantastic. Great. Well, David Watermull is the CEO and founder of Cardax, and Kevin Lee is the chief medical officer over at Pono Pharma. I want to thank you both for joining us today. Great to be here. Thanks, guys. It was a pleasure. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll talk about new tech in aquaponics and hydroponics. And of course, if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, email us at feedback at bitemarkscafe.org. Of course, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Bitemarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chung, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's an artist named Matt Makaha and a song called Translucent. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe.